Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 19, Endgame, 1951 to 1952. I'm Keith Pilly. Okay, so last week we talked about the steady return of normalcy as after the death of Blackjack Kraken at the hands of Jorge Estrada and the USS O'Bannon, the Project Mousetrap operation continued to decimate the remaining creature menace, and a new sense of restored order permeated the Pacific. This week, the end of the road. At least, this road. While the measures of distance per encounter and encountered creature size had continued to improve through early 1951, in mid-July, a crucial milestone was passed. Convoy RC-5150, nine merchant ships escorted by eight mousetrap destroyers and the escort carrier Normandy, traveled from Los Angeles to Manila without encountering a single sea creature en route. Both the Pacific Naval Establishment in San Diego and the broader National Security Establishment in Washington were excited when word was received that the convoy had arrived, but Fletcher and Trumbull advised caution. One convoy didn't mean too much. And then, four days later, convoy ZX-2112 arrived in Sydney, having traveled from Seattle to Pearl Harbor and then on to Australia without any contact. In San Diego... Trumbull popped a bottle of champagne at Sinkpack headquarters. Two in a row meant something. Progress was being made. They were winning. A jubilant Dewey addressed the nation that night, announcing the success of the two convoys, but cautioning that while this was a very welcome sign of progress, the struggle was not over and people should expect more difficulty before the end. As if to prove his point, Three days later, a convoy on the way to Anchorage was attacked by a trio of lesser creatures, and while two of them were destroyed by mousetrap barges, one managed to sink two merchant vessels and cripple the destroyer Richards. But by this point, the public didn't care about that. Celebrations were being staged across the country. Several Midwestern towns held parades. When ships from the two victorious convoys completed their return legs, they were greeted by jubilant crowds, and their crews, military and merchant, officer and rating, were celebrated as conquering heroes in Los Angeles and Seattle. Quote, I remembered that picture of the sailor kissing the woman in New York on VJ Day, said Evan Store of Quincy, Indiana. And then when Quincy held our parade to celebrate the convoys getting through all clean, I figured this was the best chance I was ever going to get. So right as the parade passed us on Main Street, I just grabbed Hannah Lay and dipped her and kissed her. She slapped me right on the chops afterwards, but it was worth it, just to feel like we'd won." End quote. Amid the ongoing jubilation, in September, a private shipping company, Sealift Lines, decided to test the waters of the new triumphant freedom, and sent their 12,000-ton cargo ship, the SS George Chernow, from San Diego to Oahu, with a hold full of the kind of commercial goods, appliances, clothes, you name it, that had been in short supply in Hawaii for years. 
Chernow was met at the docks by cheering, shocked crowds, with people loudly remarking that they hadn't seen an unescorted civilian ship in years. And the Sea Lift office in San Diego sent a press release out, coast to coast, pronouncing that they were back in the free and open commercial shipping business. A furious President Dewey instructed Attorney General Thomas Wilson to issue a statement condemning Sealift for casually violating emergency security rules and to fine Sealift as stiffly as possible for doing so and thus encouraging others to do so. Wilson did, and also confiscated the hold full of pineapples that the Chernow had brought back, and though the fine stung Sealift, the statement made little impact. The public didn't care. The celebrations and buoyant mood continued. Quote, I feel like the grumpy old man standing in the doorway telling people at a party to knock it off, being completely ignored and looking completely ridiculous, end quote, Dewey wrote in his diary. After three more official convoys crossed the Pacific without so much as a sighting, a frustrated Dewey felt that he had no choice but to relent, lest the public just get out ahead of the law entirely. On October 9th, 1951, Dewey called a press conference and announced a formal end to the state of national emergency originally called by Harry Truman, and he suspended the ban on unescorted shipping and fishing. The Navy, Dewey clarified, would continue to arrange and provide convoys on major shipping lanes, and shippers were strongly encouraged to use them. But such use was now merely encouraged, not required. Dewey addressed the nation, concluding, quote, While hard experience has taught us that we must always maintain some level of vigilance, it is with the greatest of pleasure that I conclude that the seas are once again safe for us, my fellow Americans. Anchors away, end quote. Typical Dewey, quipped comedian Bob Hope on his radio variety show on the 10th. Everyone's at a pool party, splashing around, having a great time in the water, and he's standing there on the side in a business suit, saying he thinks it might be safe to get in pretty soon. But then Hope paused and added, But for real, God love that man. Folks, he got us through it. Through the rest of 1951, gross shipping tonnage surged upwards, and the Pacific fishery roared back to life as an expanding feeling of normalcy took hold. Creature encounters still happened, and unescorted ships were occasionally lost, especially in deeper waters, but all with decreasing frequency. In the waning days of 1951, other important markers of normality were passed. A reconstructed Panama Canal finally opened, restoring another vital logistical and strategic link. And more poignantly, the Army Corps of Engineers announced that the first stage of their initial cleanup operation had been completed, and a program of limited resettlement and reconstruction would begin in East Oakland to be followed by San Jose and San Francisco. Federal reconstruction assistance loans and grants of over a billion dollars were made available to displaced former residents or the families of deceased former residents. In January of 1952, Thomas Dewey formally announced his campaign for re-election as President of the United States, running as the man who saved the Pacific, with the red-hot political star Richard M. Nixon as his running mate. Former General Dwight D. Eisenhower, hero of the war in Europe, stepped down from his post as President of Columbia University to run against Dewey on the Democratic ticket. 
Eisenhower argued that Dewey's presidency had been disastrous for the U.S. economy and that his logistical experience would be a key element of rebuilding the economy. But reality undercut Eisenhower's argument throughout the year, as the economy steadily recovered and the rate of creature attacks dwindled off to zero. Only three sightings were reported in the entire Pacific between the months of May and August 1952, and biologists argued intensely over whether one of them was just a larger-than-usual normal octopus. And actually, a quick aside there about that octopus. In the final act of her feud with Regina Foner, Kay Hendry put her entire institutional weight into having the octopus, which certainly was much larger than normal, officially designated by ONI as a lesser sea creature. This way, the creature's lack of signature phoner mutation cells meant that this was an official repudiation of the phoner cosmic ray theory, which had been falling out of favor anyway. Anyway, despite his personal popularity, Dwight Eisenhower gained no traction whatsoever, and it was clear by early autumn that a Dewey landslide was looming. After the inevitable happened, Dewey's second inaugural address served double duty as a semi-official announcement of victory in the conflict with the sea creatures. Quote, As we triumphed over fascism, as we triumphed over Japanese imperialism, and as we shall inevitably triumph over the specter of international communist expansion, we have triumphed over the menace of unnatural sea creatures run amok, he said, in school, we were taught that one of the great themes of literature is man versus nature. My fellow Americans, I stand before you to say that in this contest, man has come out on top. Dewey vowed to spend his second term focusing on the reconstruction of the Bay Area and countering the increasing Soviet domination of Europe and Japan. And with that, it was over. Really, it had been over for a while, but the end, like the beginning, existed more as a continuum than as a discrete moment that you could point to. The last ship to be lost to the creatures was probably the fishing trawler Pilgrim that disappeared off the Alaskan coast in September of 1952. But even that's open to debate. Pilgrim never reported a contact or an attack. She just failed to turn back up in her home port. And like I said in the first episode, sometimes ships just disappear. Maybe it's worth stopping a moment to take stock in the entire conflict. Who won it, really? Victory happened under Thomas Dewey's watch, but he mostly just listened to experts and made reasonable decisions for things that were already in motion. And he got a big boost from the final acts of Harry Truman. You couldn't really argue in good faith that either of these presidents had single-handedly won the war. So how about Rich Trumbull and Kay Hendry? They put together the pieces that sealed the victory, sure. But they weren't the ones out on the ocean staring death in the face as they tried to time a radio-controlled explosive detonation just right. What about Jorge Estrada or Major Dennis Young? They did heroic things but they did them when the actions of others had already moved the conflict forward and, in Estrada's case, nearly brought it to the end. And they both were working on ships crewed by hundreds with entire crews working together, 
to make their actions possible. Here's the thing. We as humans want to put a face on historical narratives and say, this heroic person won the war. But it's not like that. History moves on the collective actions of humanity. Millions of people make history. Maybe an individual person's decision will matter here or there, but it's the bigger group that makes things happen. So the sea monster conflict, in the end, was won by thousands of sailors working together, both military and civilian, and pilots, and civilian dock workers, and civilian factory workers, and intelligence analysts, and construction workers, and shipyard workers, and just everyday civilians working hard to keep on keeping on as the world burns around them. If there's a hero we need to celebrate for the sea monster conflict, it's a collective hero. It's the American people sharing hardship and sacrifice, working together for a greater good. That's a capacity you need to have if you're going to have a society that functions. Despite the best efforts of Foner, Hart, and the other self-styled xenobiologists who bedeviled K. Hendry, no satisfactory answer had ever been reached on where the creatures came from or what had caused their explosive population growth and aggressive behavior. Possibly, as Hendry had continually argued, none of that mattered in the end. They were there, they were aggressive, and the rest was details. What mattered was that ordinary Americans had worked together and endured privations to get through the crisis, and they had gotten through the crisis. As time went on, a sense of unreality seemed to drape the creature conflict years as a more mundane, world-as-normal asserted itself. The second Dewey administration, lacking the heroic drive of the first, dissolved into squabble and scandal, leaving no one but Vice President Richard Nixon looking good. The world ground on, and though reminders of the struggle were everywhere if one bothered to look at them, and it was triflingly easy not to if you didn't live in the endlessly recovering Bay Area, a faint sense remained in the back of the American consciousness. Together, we had gotten through something terrible by working together. And if we had to, maybe we could again. Although sailors will tell you that the sea never stops trying to kill you if you let your guard down, the perils of the oceans remained confined to the realm of the normal wind and wave for decades after 1952. Ships went down, and navies postured at each other, especially during the Civil War that overthrew the communist regime in Japan in 1959, bringing the United States and the Soviet Union to the brink of narrowly averted nuclear war but no tentacles or serpents were seen. Until May of 1987, when Einar Jokel, Iceland's Minister of Defense, held a press conference to express concern over an abrupt spike in losses to Iceland's commercial fishing fleet. And that's it. For the story, anyway. Thank you very much for listening. It has been a really, really fun ride telling you about all of this. Please join me one more time next week as I go into some apocrypha, debunk some myths, and uh, maybe seed a few myths of my own. And uh, let's talk about the future next week, too. Thanks, and be well. Them squids they didn't think about Just who they was attacking Wanker boys Get out
out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Line up all them battleships and send the seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Dee 